Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Tom D'Agostino, co-author along with Arlene Nicholson of New England's Haunted Route 44, just published by the History Press. We spent all last week in the haunted city of Plymouth, and today we're kicking the tires and lighting the fires to get out on the road. If you're enjoying the show, leave us a short review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find us, and we sure are grateful. Thanks as always for listening. Now, buckle up, because it's about to get spooky. Tom, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So before we get out of Plymouth and into the countryside uh, on New England's haunted Route 44, I wanted to uh, take just a quick step back and ask you about some of the research that you've done and some of the approaches that you take to paranormal studies. And the reason I ask this is because we have had in our various spooky seasons here at Crime Capsule over the years, um, authors who are really at every point on the spectrum. You know, we have some of our, our guests subscribe to the it's all folklore and folklore is fun and folklore is great but we have to remember it's folklore okay so there's there's that wing there's the opposite end of the wing which is that it's all real it's all crazy you know like life is not what we think it is and we better get ready you know i'm exaggerating but you know um the the sort of everything is credible right approach and then we have the folks in the middle which you know who occupy the position of you know let's test our methods let's do the best we can to establish good documentation. You know, let's take everything with the appropriately sized grain of salt, right? And the further away in time we get from an incident or a recounting of the incident, you know, the more our skepticism should be a tool in our toolkit, you know, that we reach for. Um, You know, you get kind of all variety of responses to to paranormal where where really do you fall on that spectrum actually um, all three of them apply because when i go into a case or, or you know an incident i don't expect anything and i'm not looking for you know some uh exactly okay it's a ghost we gotta go i walk in and let's say okay you heard this this happened this happened this happened let's see if we can find out why uh we've had cases where yeah this person um was uh, hearing noises in near in uh, the wall, and come to find out somebody had walled up a set of keys, and it was very drafty, and you'd hear the keys banging against the side of the wall, and when hit with things <laughs> like great. that, you know. <laughs> yeah. We had one case. Was Slightly keep, disappointing, I yeah, have to say. Like, when is. you find that out, you're like, oh, man, you know. Dang yeah, it. <laughs> it is. But, you know, we've had one case where the people moved into this house and they go in the house is definitely haunted i mean we didn't hear this kind of noises in our old house so we set up cameras and leave it open and come to find out the house was haunted by their cat when they lived in the city it was so noisy the midnight rounds of the cat jumping around and going nuts could not be heard but in the dead end of a you know 
a little roundabout and with the woods and everything, it was so quiet. Yeah, they that's what they were that's what they were hearing. The cat just doing his nightly rounds. <laughs> well, I can tell you that Snickers is haunting my studio <laughs> desk right now, and she is very pleased to be doing so. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so when you know, and we hear the folklore and the things, and I do research like we wouldn't believe on a place. We, I want to know who owned it right to the point from where it began as just a, a piece of land with nothing on it. All the way up until, you know, and how many people lived in the house and how many children and who may have passed away in the house and their ages and what they did for a living. I mean, everything. I want to find out. I'll go to the town halls, look up deeds. And in this way, when I'm going in, I have a whole giant thing. I'm not just saying, oh, you know, James Brown was the guy who was the most prominent one. He's the ghost. <laughs> you know, it could have been a friend who visited James every week. So uh, I, I get it all. I'm on the whole spectrum there because uh, I know of the folklore. And I, first of all, in New England, behind me, you can see we have over 2,000 books and 98% of them are on all New England history. There's sources. You have to, you have to check, you know, what, what else has been uh, you know, written out there and who's credible and who's not credible, of course. Yeah, yeah, and I like to go all the way back to the very first writing to see why and how that came to be. We did have one guest uh, last year who uh, established, you know, uh, an investigative unit uh, out out west. I mean, do you do you take specialized gear when you kind of go out into the field, so to speak? If you're traipsing around Plymouth burial ground or a, or a new a new burial ground, you know, deep in the in the boonies of Western Mass. <laughs> yeah, we actually have um, everything from what they call REM pods, which is nothing more than a, a, a theremin. But if something energy comes close to it, it'll start going off. What I did is I built them into uh, candles. Because with the REM pods, they look very modern and they say REM pod. Now, yeah, I'm going to tell a guy from 1760, hey, can you touch that REM pod? They go, oh, yeah, yeah. We, we had, I had a ton of those when I was a kid in 1740. You know? so, but you can't say, can you hand me that candle? And then we uh, we have the we use all the modern equipment, you know, for different reasons and things like that. And we use very old dowsing rods. And Arlene is a tarot card reader, and she knows the tarot inside out. I mean, what every card goes with which, you know, like. And uh, so we use them to field questions, and in that way, it's better than saying, "Hey, do you like pizza?" <laughs> now we're fielding the questions, working off the end, trying to work off the energy of the area, and we've been very successful like that. It is interesting because I imagine you have such a wide variety of cases that you describe in the book from the colonial era, from the first contact with indigenous peoples, you know, all the way up until things that happened in 2021 in the middle of the pandemic, right? And it sounds like you kind of have to tailor your approach to the time period of the incident you're investigating in a way. Yeah, we have a very big tackle box and we, we you know, we, we bring it all with us because you never know. But yeah, we do use the tarot cards, uh, dowsing rods, pendulum mats, uh, EMF meters, K2 meters, the ramp pods, uh, spirit boxes, you know, that kind of thing. And we even have battery, the spirit box, we even have like battery packs for them and stuff like that so you can take them into the woods 
I will be watching safely from a distance as you go into the woods, <laughs> you know, at midnight on the stroke of, of Halloween. Uh, you know, I'll be waiting at the car with some sandwiches for you, uh, you know, for when you get back. But um, no, that's that's really fascinating. I think, you know, it's always intriguing to see what are the things that we can measure, right? And what, what tools do we have are available to us to investigate these things. Now, let's head out, head out of Plymouth. Let's, let's get in the car. Got the sandwiches packed, yeah. Um, you know, got a flask of whiskey, right? You know, for 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 when we stop. Um, and let's head down Route Forty Four a little bit. You describe this one surprised me, uh, Tom. I, I have to confess, as I was reading your account, I, I did not expect to learn about UFO activity in that part of New England. I always associate UFO activity with, of course, the desert Southwest or, you know, parts of California. Um, you know, we've got plenty in the Great Lakes region, you know, we've had on the show before. But but this was new to me. I did not realize that, that New England was such a hotspot for UAPs, we should call them, using the contemporary, you know, terminology. Uh, and what was doubly interesting was that many of these accounts of sightings of strange things in the sky, they too date from the colonial era. You have sightings from the 1700s, not just from, you know, a, a, a drunk apple farmer in the Berkshires, you know, last year. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Oh, yeah, well, that's what makes these so much more interesting is because uh, you know, John Winthrop in, 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 writes in his journal in 1639 that uh, a sober and discreet man with two others saw a great light in the night over Muddy River. And it moved and, you know, it moved around and they watched it for a while. And you can't say, oh, that was just a drone or maybe it was an airplane or a helicopter because nothing like that even existed back then. So they they see this bright light in the sky moving around like that's quite quite interesting. In eighteen oh eight, Cynthia Everett um, saw one while in Camden, Maine, and she writes about it how it moved in different directions and stuff. I mean, so you know, it, it's quite interesting. It is, and it's also that what what set it apart f- from for me uh, from other. Uh, aerial phenomena of the time is that the motion described cannot be a comet, right? It can't be a meteor breaking up in the sky. Those are unidirectional every single time, <laughs> right? Yeah, a comet doesn't move that fast either. You know, you're looking at it, uh, sky, and the next night it's over there, not too far, 12 hours later. And yes, meteors are zipping going. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. So I thought that was kind of interesting that they, they observe this. How many of these accounts from the colonial and revolutionary era, you know, do we have of UAPs or UFOs in this area? Are they common, I guess is what I'm asking? Not really. Um, we have several, uh, but... I don't know if people who saw them may have wrote about them like, you know, these people who were actually writing journals and things like that. You know, it's what someone may have seen one or, or several people may have seen one, but nobody could really write about it or maybe they didn't know how to. And uh, they could say word of mouth, which would die off over time. But uh, to chronicle them is, is rare, which is great because who knows how many people actually saw these things. Now, and, and the ones you mentioned here, 
um, did we get those from letters, from diary entries, from personal journal entries? What was the kind of context of the of the recounting? Yeah, they were in journals, which is really cool. Uh, they they wrote about them. like the one Cynthia Everett. I mean, she was like a a teacher, you know. So she was definitely going to write about it. And John Winthrop was keeping journals, and and so he writes about it because of that, keeping his journals. Uh, Cotton Mather and those people writing books on the strange things that happened in New England. They were they were actually l- looking for something like this that to write about instead of saying, no, 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 I don't want to write about that. <laughs> that was something, wow, I've got to record this. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, it raises the question of, you know, if, if your only intended audience is yourself, right? I mean, if you're actually not trying to hawk something or sell something, you're writing this down in a journal and it's for your eyes only and you don't intend anybody else to read it because it is so private. You know, to my mind, I've not, of course, seen the, you know, the originals or, or the, you know, the, uh, the textual history, but I mean, to my mind, that just makes it like a little more credible. If I'm writing for something for my own personal use and not to kind of put it out there in the marketplace or to, you know, kind of gin up interest among the local villagers or, you know, whatever it might be. This is really just something I saw and I'd like to make sense out of or, or record so I don't forget. That just ups the credibility meter like one half notch from the get-go. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, and right, it wasn't like when Edgar Allan Poe wrote that article about um, the airship going across the thing and everything, and people were like, holy Jesus, he was doing it as a stunt to make money. <laughs> so he, you know, it goes put out in the papers. Yes, but these people, yes. yeah, they're, they're writing in their journal going, Jesus, you wouldn't, this happened, this is amazing. I, and, you know, and they weren't going around opening their page in the town hall going, look, everybody, I've got, <laughs> this is what I wrote. Exactly. Shame, shameless plug here for our most uh, recent guest here on Crime Capsule, Chris Simpter, um, you know, we had him describe the Edgar Allan Poe's um, article on mesmerism and Monsieur Valdemar, you know, who is mesmerized back from the grave, um, you know, across the veil, you know, that sort of thing. And, and of course, I mean, he was, he was doing it to make the money to, to, <laughs> to sell the article to, you know, to, to further his career. And it's just classic, classic example. Now you do great story, great story. Uh, now you write in the context of your UFO sightings in on Route 44, uh, two very important institutions which were uh, you know founded in order to track these things Project Blue Book of course which you know many people know know about and then MUFON um, what was the what was the kind of upshot of Blue Book and MUFON w- with respect to this particular area along 44 they actually you know MUFON did a lot of the uh, you know investigations and things like that and Project Blue Book, came along well they were first obviously and when, when I when I was a kid I actually the first book I wanted to read when I was like eight or nine was Project Blue Book when it <laughs> when, and uh, but MUFON was an all you know volunteer when that began sometime after Project Blue Book ended their, their thing and uh, they've they've grown since but wow I mean they have so many cases from uh, 1947 to 1969, 12,000 sightings alone for Blue Book and 700 remain unidentified. 
Um, you can get that book anyway. Then MUFON takes over where they are. And at, at the time, it was just Midwest. Midwest and UFO, you know, that's what MUFON meant. But, well, they're looking going, holy crap, look at this stuff that's going on in New England. Uh, maybe we should branch out a little bit. Yeah, let's branch out a bit. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they, they do a lot of work here, too. So it, it went from the Midwest to woof everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, and of, of course, for UFO trackers or UAP, you know, enthusiasts, um, you know, the news in the past couple months has just been very interesting. That we may begin to see the creation of a more formalized uh, database, you know, a federal database of sightings that can be, you know, archived and documented and securely submitted, you know, for pilots, you know, who are seeing things that they can't quite explain. I mean. Um, who, kn- who knows what could come out of that, you know, when you have an actual, uh, you know, federal entity devoted to it and not just a bunch of guys in the backyard uh, or drunk apple farmers in the Berkshires with to whom my heart absolutely goes out in, in solidarity. Um, now, you did have a couple of sightings very, very recently just in the that came up really as you were writing the book. Um, and I was thinking of um, the incidents along, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, Assawampsit. Pond? Is that right? Yeah, Assawamset Pond. <laughs> yeah, what's going on there? That's cool because uh, that's a place, basically, John Sassaman was found killed. That's what bas- was one of the really big uh, preludes to King Philip's War. And, uh, and of course, there's a place, Betty Neck. Betty, yeah, Betty's Neck that's haunted. Now, the uh, UFOs and stuff... Uh, Areas Middleborough is part of the Bridgewater Triangle, and it's known. Is boy, is it known for uh, weird stuff? Uh, in 1998, people watched this bright object maneuvering over Assawamset Pond in Middleborough. Then it split in two. Then the two objects began doing these weird patterns, and you know, display these weird lights and stuff. Well, they rejoined and flew off. Moments later, we see Air Force jets flying in the area. Okay, wolf. Yeah. So, uh, wow, huh? Now, don't forget, this is a time when we didn't really have drones back then. You know how you can buy a drone at Walmart now or any store and just yahoo and do something with it. You can put like, you know, a little battery pack with weird flashing lights you get at the dollar store and stick it on it and go up there and people go, what the heck is that? You know, this is also a couple of years before the uh, the whole Chinese spy balloon debacle oh, <laughs> as yeah. well. Yep. And, <laughs> and our, our knowledge of how Chinese spy balloons maneuver does not match the <laughs> description of what they, these folks saw there, too. I mean, yeah, because you got them going down even in 2021 and 2020. So it's not like... Uh, this just happened once. Assawampsit Pond. Assawampsit. Who knows what's going on <laughs> over there? So let's keep let's keep traveling down the highway here, and there's a there's a major stop, which I'm going to be completely honest, Tom. I don't want to ask you about. I really don't want to ask you about because when I read the section in your book, I, I, there's just in the in the pantheon of spooky sites. There's there's one which just really hits close to home for me, and that is uh, abandoned or derelict hospitals. I just cannot stand that that as a 
as a locus, as a, you know, as a setting that just it really gets under my skin. Um, and you have what it, I'll, I'll take an abandoned prison over an abandoned hospital any day of the week, right? You know, just, and you have one of the granddaddies of abandoned medical institutions along for, Route 44. So I'm going to, uh, I'm going to take a shot of whiskey right now. I am. G- <laughs> Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. I'm going to take my shot of whiskey and I'm going to ask you about old Taunton and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to grit my teeth while you tell me about old Taunton because it is, it's brutal and I don't like it one bit and I'm just going to close my eyes and hope it's over really, really fast. <laughs> oh, yeah, I thought you were going to talk about the, mention the DMV, but okay. The bar, oh, well, well yeah, there's the, that too. There's those that are scary too, too but. <laughs> well, yeah, the old asylum, I mean, first of all, to call it an asylum it does, you know, wow, that conjures up some thoughts. But it was erected in uh, 1854, and Jesus, uh, it was called the State Lunatic Hospital. So right off the bat, I don't think it's gonna, it was going to have any positive energies going with it. Not a lot of happy vibes. <laughs> no. no. There was um, neglect, unspeakable atrocities that took place in there. Cult activity actually reported to take place in the basement where the patients were used in these rituals, which was pretty horrible. Uh, The facility closed in 1975. Now, a lot of the facilities closed around here from neglect and everything in the 90s. So for that to close that early, there must have been something really bad. Um, And it was neglected. I mean, they were these, these patients, I guess, were living not only in this horrible atmosphere but in a building that was derelict falling down practically and you know and actually part of it did finally collapse in 1999 they, they actually put this building on the register of historic places unbelievable huh <laughs> wait but that, that means people are <laughs> well, going to go and visit it we don't want that <laughs> i know yeah huh? oh but a lot of it was demolished for safety reasons later on but a lot of them were just left and fenced off to the public, and uh, <clears throat> they wanted to use some of them for modern use, but the problem is people in the basements and in the buildings of any of these that were repurposed, they they uh, they hear like st- things going up and down the stairs, they get cold spots, um, there's a fear that overcomes them that they know is not their feeling, but something being permeated into them, that they, they, they run. Uh, lights going on and off all of a sudden. Uh, 
doors flying open, um, faceless shadowy figure of a man who appears in rooms, uh, this, this, this figure of just a dark person just appears in certain rooms. You could not pay me enough money ever <laughs> <laughs> to, to go and check this place oh, out. What is this? Yeah, a, a lot of the patients, too, were buried in pauper's graves, which, um, you know, in the Mayflower Hill Cemetery uh, down the road. And, uh, yeah, and, and this is funny because the women in the hospitals used to sew burial ground, burial gowns, I mean, for those who died while in the care of the facility. So they these people would pass away in the care, and they'd had these people sewing, making just burial shrouds for them. Some dignity, some some dignity there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. This, this uh, spirit of a man who walks the goss building, which is uh, people, you know, one of the repurposed buildings, I guess. And uh, people who went to these certain rooms, man, they get like these feelings that just, whoa, almost want to throw them back into the hallway. So this place is like, uh, it was also the best part of it, was home to one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. Oh, great. Let's just add <laughs> some more to the, to the pile, shall we? <laughs> yeah, huh? Oh, yeah. As, as if that wasn't good enough. Here we go. Jane, yeah. <laughs> Jane Toppin, who was born actually Honor Kelly in 1857, uh, she, her father just dropped her off at the uh, Boston Female Asylum, and then he vanished, boom, forever. And so the Toppin family of Lowell took her in as an indentured servant. You know, you can come help us, and you, you can live here. And then over time, she adopted their last name. But she was wicked intelligent. However, she was a sociopath. <laughs> uh, she actually trained for nursing. And in 1885, she made many, many friends. Um, and she was nicknamed Jolly Jane because of her friendly nature. Well, Jolly Jane obviously had another side, which uh, where she began using her patients with experiments in morphine and atrophine. <clears throat> now, this is cool because she'd inject them with lethal doses and then she would lie in bed next to them as they died. And she would go on. She killed about 30-something patients before... She turned a killing spree towards others, like her sister, her foster sister. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> yeah, and uh, other people. Well, she was arrested in 1901, so she had a lot of time to, you know, have some fun here. And she was found guilty by reason of insanity. Well, not guilty, I'm sorry. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And she was committed to the state hospital, where she died in 1938. Yeah. So there you the, go. The irony, the like, the <laughs> horror, the 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 tragedy, the insanity of it—it's all like wrapped up into one package, you know, just like right at this spot. I I I think I need another no, no, no. another shot of whiskey just to get to the end of this <laughs> chapter. <laughs> yeah, grab a pint. Yeah. Well, during her interview, which is kind of funny, she said her goal was to have killed more people, more helpless people than any other man and woman who ever lived. So she, she was like going on a spree. She wasn't like, okay, I'm done here. <laughs> Had she not been caught, she probably would have kept going and going and going. So I have to ask you, and I don't want to ask you, but I have to, have you been to this asylum? Have you been to the site? This, you guys went and visited? 
Yeah, but um, like I said, some of the bills repurposed, they don't want people going in. It's it's like any other place. It's kind of private. Uh, it's like I, you know, you can't just walk into a hospital like that or, or buildings like that that have been repurposed. I mean, like you can just walk into like, you know, Day Kimball Hospital down the road and they'll still ask you, can I help you? There's a security guard there. If you don't have a reason, it's like, all right. Get back in your car. Stay <laughs> in the car, Tom. Stay in the car. Yeah. <laughs> don't get out of the car. Keep driving past <laughs> this particular yeah, we, location. <laughs> can I help you? Yeah, we want to contact Jane Toppin's ghost and hang out for a while. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. Come right exactly. in. <laughs> Go to yeah, room She's eight. right over here in room 302, you know, <laughs> waiting yeah, for really. you with a fresh needle. You're not exactly <laughs> welcoming on that kind of a <laughs> no, level. No. Okay, so... Um, I'm going to refill my uh, pint glass of whiskey, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm going to pour some coffee into my whiskey and then we'll, we will continue this journey. No, um, actually, as we continue the journey, I, I do, I, I do want to ask you about one of my favorite cases in your book, and it pertains directly to driving away from the old lunatic asylum as you continue down Route 44. Um, you have one of my absolute oldest paranormal story champions, right? And I'm going to reveal my age a little bit here, but when I was a kid, uh, you know, growing up uh, in the 80s and 90s, I one of my favorite TV shows was Are You Afraid of the Dark, right? You know, it's like late night, yeah. you know, kind of <laughs> like... It was you know spooky, spooky kind of serialized. And, and one of my favorite early episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark... Uh, is I, I don't know if it would hold up, you know, 25 years later, you know, 30 years later, and have to go and kind of, you know, check check that out independently to see whether whether it's still spooky. But one of my favorites was this great episode about a phantom hitchhiker. You know, like taxi cab driver picks somebody up, gets in the back seat. And, you know, different versions of it. Number one, he turns around and he's gone. And number two, he turns around and, like, the hitchhiker's head is missing. You know, number three, you know, there's all sorts of variations. But, but I mean, it's, it, it's a, a legend or, a, or an, a case, I guess, you know, on your highway that recurs. A lot of people have seen this phantom hitchhiker. So introduce us to him. Well, uh the Phantom Hitchhiker, Route 44. He, uh, as far as I, I go back uh, with this story, 50 years that I know of. I, I mean, it, it could have gone back further, but for me, it's been 50 years. I used to drive. We owned a bait and tackle shop in Smithfield, Rhode Island, right on Route 44, go figure. And I'd have to travel to Middleborough uh, to get shiners, bait, you know, for the yeah. thing twice a week sometimes during the big peak season all the way down Route 44. And I got to tell you, I did this for several years and I never saw the hitchhiker. Uh, I probably wasn't looking for him at that time, but I never saw anyone hitchhiking that I could remember. Um, you know, you're not going to stop with, pick someone up with piles of uh, fish in your car. But um, well, I mean, it's kind of kind of up to them, although it's a very interesting question. <laughs> yeah. it's a, it, you know, Tom, you raise a very interesting epistemological question here, which is that if you go hunting for the hitchhiker are you less likely to find him does the hitchhiker only appear to those who are not expecting to see him that is a good question i mean i uh so many people have 
actually you can go on like YouTube and everything and see how many people go we're going to the most haunted place in the country Route 44 Rehoboth with the hitchhiker who was basically um He's described as a, uh, you know, a, not too tall, but a tall guy. Uh, he's, he's described as about 40 years old with a red plaid shirt and very disheveled red hair. Uh, basically looks like a farm person or something like that. And people have seen him. Uh, they've stopped to pick him up. And there's some cases where the guy or girl will open the door to let them in and look back and there's nobody there. Nobody or there. this person, nobody there. Or this person will get in, and they'll be really silent. And about you know several seconds later, they look over and there's nobody there in the car. One guy went as far as to say he uh, was driving down the road and he saw this hitchhiker and he stopped. And when he went to let the person in, there was nobody there. He started driving off, and a few seconds later, he's up to 50 miles an hour, which is the speed limit for that area. And there's his face in the window, on the outside of the window, <laughs> keeping up with the car. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> they stopped, and they pick him up, and then they hear this ghostly, wild laughter that emanates from all around. Uh, they, they actually driving down the road. He's in the middle of the road. They'll lock up their brakes and go right through him. Whoa. So this, yeah, this red-headed hitchhiker, I mean, he's been out there for a very, very long time, and there's a lot of stories and accounts of people who have actually got so scared when these things happen, they pull over and call AAA or the police. <laughs> they, they're afraid to move. That's so intense. Well, they broke down in that area, and they encountered the, the hitchhiker. So I don't know if people looking for him or not looking for him. I think this Red-headed hitchhiker will appear when he wants to appear. It is a busy road. It is a bit, Route 44 can be a pretty busy road at certain points. Is there any, uh, you know, I know some paranormal investigators uh, really like to kind of work the data angle. I mean, is there any data on uh, more commonly seen at night as opposed to in the daytime? More commonly seen on, you know, in on, on busier um, stretches of the highway as opposed to maybe more sparse or like between between settlements you know kind of areas there yeah it's right on right near the Rehoboth line and it doesn't go a far stretch i'd say within a half a mile and it's mostly dusk and night time not so much during the day and that area is traveled it's not exactly like you know ventura highway or something <laughs> and during rush hour but you get it's travel but as as the night sets in there's not much reason for an awful lot of vehicles to be going down that stretch you know it's not there's no mecca malls or anything there are stores but your stores close at six seven and uh but that's about when he's seen mostly. I mean, if anyone wants to take that little that little triangulation, right? <laughs> you know where to go. You know oh, when yeah. to go. You know, and try your luck. Um, let us let us know what you find out, folks. Let us know what you find out. Um, let's take one last stop on this magical mystery tour of Route Forty Four, and um, you mentioned earlier a, a kind of a the American uh, landlocked version of the Bermuda Triangle, which is the Bridgewater Triangle. And specifically within the Bridgewater Triangle, you have cryptids, and you've got some great cryptids. You've got some, you know, as a Southern boy, I love a good 
a good critter, you know, just like, give me a, a log, I'm going to roll it over, find out what's underneath it, you know, like, let's go, right? Um, what kind of critters <laughs> do you have in the Bridgewater Triangle? Well, oh, wow. <laughs> there is, for some reason... All of them, yeah. he says. We've yeah. got all of them. <laughs> yeah, we got, we got a good array here now. <laughs> uh, believe it or not, um, the, the Bridgewater Triangle was studied by Lauren Coleman and uh, Christopher Balzano, who wrote a book on it, Ghosts of the Bridgewater Triangle, which is pretty cool. And uh, Lauren Coleman has you know, written several things. But a lot of the people, besides them, people who have witnessed these creatures... Uh, one of them is a person, uh, well, a small, looks like a small person with very gangly arms, like they're broken, swinging freely as it moves. Uh, and they've seen this run, boom, coming out of the woods into the path of automobiles or running back into the woods. And um, they believe it, it looks something like the famous Dover Demon, uh, which is a kind of very strange looking creature, not of this world, definitely. And um, some people have seen what looked like it was a, uh, uh, they followed, these chilled kids followed three-toed footprints into the swamp. Now, Hockamock Swamp is where, it, it's it's a native uh, place where spirits dwell. Though this is pretty interesting. And the Hockamock Swamp is pretty big, and, and this is where a lot of it takes place in the Bridgewater Triangle. Well, so as they followed it, they saw this giant, creature which took half human half bird and it was tall and it took straight up boom straight up into the air like a rocket now um, sergeant downey was driving along home one time he, this is a police officer now in 1971 where all of a sudden he saw the same thing at the edge of the swamp this like six foot tall bird <laughs> or over six feet tall he stops because whoa you know you don't see that every day right and he stops <laughs> It starts moving toward the car, and then it stretched its wings, which he said was to be about 8 to 12 feet long, and went off into the sky again. Now, the cool thing about this is the place is called Bird Hill, and it's a native area where the natives said this is uh, where Thunderbirds may have, well, They've seen Thunderbirds, which what is... What is that a, exactly? you know, yeah, a Thunderbird is a giant uh, mythical creature of native origin that would fit this description pretty well. Now, and uh, also, uh, a couple of police officers were parked in the area. They were just, you know, near the swamp, doing either a routine, let's do a traffic thing. Suddenly, the rear end of the car lifts up and then dropped. And they just spin around and they spin their lights and they see this creature that resembles a Bigfoot running behind a few houses. Hey. Now, uh, yeah, Another hunter uh, saw this Bigfoot one time. He, he actually uh, he, he actually shot at it because it scared the crap out of him. It scared the heck out of him so much. And he found some brown hair and some little bit of blood on the leaves. But um, a man named John Andrade, or Joseph Andrade, I'm sorry, Joseph M. Andrade spent decades collecting reports on this Bigfoot creature who... Uh, they, many people have seen and described it over six foot tall, tall, six feet tall, brown and hairy. Um, this Bridgewater Bigfoot has been sighted for, for, for I don't know how many decades. So we'll, if, it's either one creature or several of them. There's also one of a giant creature that resembles like a dog, a giant dog, oh, but yeah. more like a wolf. Yeah, 
Yeah. And uh, he was terrorizing the area. Search parties came and looked for it and could, could not find it. Um, at, the one, at one point, they did see what they called a monstrous-looking dog, and they fired at it, but the thing ran off into the swamp, never to be seen again. They don't know if they hit it or not. But the most famous of these is called the Pukwudgie. <laughs> oh, yeah, these little guys. Yeah, yeah the little Pukwudgie. Yeah. Now, the, now, Tom, I got to tell you, the Pukwudgies, we have had um, another one of our guests, uh, you know, has had a, a word to t- or two to say about Pukwudgies. And, and in a way, we, we, we can have a chat about a Thunderbird or, you know, like a giant half-human, half-bird monster, which to my mind, I, I hope must resemble the giant spoonbill. You know, if you've ever seen one of the giant spoonbills, they're mo- the most ridiculous looking birds. They're enormous, but they're ridiculous. Anyway, you got, you got those guys. Yeah, yeah. You got hellhounds. You got your Sasquatch, yeah, like you know, your... your you know, Green Mountain variety Sasquatch as opposed to your, you know, kind of, uh, or your Berkshire Sasquatch as opposed to your uh, lower Appalachian Sasquatch. I'm sure there's, you know, important distinctions be- between subspecies here. You know, all, all those are fine, and all those are decently scary and, you know, kind of unsettling and unnerving. But, you know, you make the point in your book, and I think you were dead right, that the smaller something is <laughs> actually the scarier it is. And it's like when you think about the great, um, you know, kind of like like horror movies or, uh, you know, cultural icons, I'm thinking Gremlins, I'm thinking Chucky, you know, it's like the, the, the you know, the sort of the, the evil dolls, right? The, the smaller, the tinier, the more compact. I mean, the, the, the fear factor magnifies inversely with the size of the creature. And and Pukwudgies, man, I mean, like I wouldn't want to touch those guys with a barge pole. <laughs> Get me away. Yeah, they're like what two or three feet tall. It, it, it reminds me a lot of that movie that came out in like 1971 called Trilogy of Terror with the Karen Black with the with the little monster, the doll. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, but because a lot of people describe them as looking kind of like that, you know, just. Um, but yeah, they are. Puckwudgie is, as according to a translation, is like supposedly wild man of the woods. That a uh, wild man of the woods that vanishes. And again, Christopher Balzano, the author, he uh, he really this is like his thing. Puckwudgies, <laughs> and uh, okay. yeah, right. and uh, yeah, they they like um, covered from hair, you know, with hair, and they resemble a troll, basically. So they could just be a troll, which is in a lot of cultures. Uh, they, I mean, they, they go back to old, very indigenous lore, and been, the writings about them go back to the you know, early 20th century, if not further back. And they, they, what they do is they use the souls of the dead to lure their victims to their demise. Um, some people have seen him. One man was walking his dog, and all of a sudden, this creature comes out of the woods in that area, and he's could see the creature's beckoning him to follow him into the woods. Well, what do you think he did? Well, I think he ran. <laughs> you know, he, right? <laughs> but he did tell his story later, so he lived to. He must have ran. And um, these 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 puckwudgies are. Uh, Basically, supposedly, according to legend, they were friendly and helpful to the Indians until the Indians thought they were a nuisance and then had them gotten rid of by, you know, another god called Moshop or something. But they um, really, uh, they, 
are known to be, they, they appear and disappear and vanish, but they're known to be very alluring. Like, in other words, they can put you into a trance and make you oh. follow them to somewhere like a cliff or somewhere where they, you, you'll, you know, jump to your death. Right. And then they harvest your soul for the whatever. victims. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you don't want to annoy them. But here's a funny thing, because um, on in Freetown, near the Freetown State Forest, they actually have a sign that says Puckwudgie Xing. Not crossing, but Xing as in like 80, 80, yeah. 86ing yeah, us. Yeah, Xing, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So like, yeah, it's like, you know, so you got to, in that area, I guess, a lot of Puckwudgies cross the road. Have you ever seen any small humanoid hairy figures in your travels up and down 44? No. Uh, it would be cool, though, if we did, but no, not that I can think of. Okay, gotcha. well, I'd remember, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, uh, if you see them, please keep, for our sakes, driving. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, huh? don't, don't feed the, uh, the locals, right? Um, yeah, well, the funny thing is I, my whole life I've lived on or right off Route 44. So you have a chance. Uh, I mean, if anybody's mm-hmm. got a chance at seeing these little guys... <laughs> Or, you know, the Thunderbird or the other local fauna, it's you. And we hope you will come back and and tell us all about it. This this really has been such a, a wild and fun and, in some cases, uh, with respect to a certain asylum, which shall not be named, <laughs> a terrifying journey, <laughs> uh, Tom. And, and we really appreciate your... You know your willingness to come and and take us on this, on this tour. It's funny because, you know, I realize that as we prepare to uh, conclude our extended spooky season, uh, Snickers here is weighing in. She is lamenting the end of spooky season because it's the end of her season. But you know, as as we have, you know, gotten ready to say goodbye to um, to spooky season this time around, I realized it is always spooky season on route 44 and anyone who wants to come and visit now that they have your book in hand is absolutely equipped to do so um tell me where can folks find you and your work what is the best place if they want to grab a copy of this one or one of your other titles how can they find you they can go to www. Tom D'Agostino, that's just D-A-G-O-S-T-I-N-O dot com, or they can go to www.diningwiththedead1031.com. Okay. And what is that What is that second resource? Tell us about that second resource. Oh, uh, my wife and I do uh, interactive paranormal investigation dinner events in the most haunted areas in New England. Uh, like the Colonial Inn in Concord, the Hawthorne Hotel in Salem, the, the Tavern on Main in Chapachet, the uh, Public House in Sturbridge. And what it is, is you, when you, uh, you get it, you know, you buy a ticket. And uh, we ha- they give us the most haunted rooms to investigate. And we'll have a delicious buffet dinner. We do giveaways, which is really cool. Lots of door prizes. We explain uh, how to use the equipment, the history and haunts of the building. And then we break into four groups. And each group will take, in, in turn, investigate an area till all four groups have investigated the four areas using all the equipment we have. And we have lots of it. And uh, so you learn to not only investigate, you're doing an actual investigation, but you're working with 
different investigators who have different styles as well. And then we go over all the evidence and then we send it out to everyone. Ah, how about that? That is so cool. I mean, next time I'm in your neck of the woods, count me in, man. I'd, I'd love go. to come <laughs> and, and dine with the dead. Everybody out there in podcast land, y'all know what to do. That sounds great. What fun. Yeah, you can find the books on our website. Also, you know, obviously, Bonds and Noble, uh, Amazon, everywhere. It's great. We, we actually went to eat at a Cracker Barrel, which is a restaurant around here. I don't know if you have them down there. Oh, we do. Oh, we do. Oh, okay. Yeah, they were for sale over there. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been such a, a pleasure. Thank you, uh, with the exception of the asylum. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and uh, all the best to you for your next book. And well, thank you. Uh, we will see you out there on Route 44. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Tom D'Agostino co-author along with Arlene Nicholson of New England's Haunted Route 44, published by the History Press. To order a copy, visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com. That's it for our extended spooky season this year. We hope you've had as much fun as we have, abandoned insane asylums notwithstanding, of course. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back here soon, just for the holidays. Thanks as always, and see you soon. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Richard Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast, Ain't It Scary, with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.